0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, dude, here
1: we are really to talk about one of the most important comics that has
0: ever been developed, Watchmen. This is a pretty exciting one. Like you said, definitely one of the most important comics ever written. I think, uh, actually, Alan Moore does prefer the term comic, but it's uh, sold as a graphic novel collection. It cemented Alan Moore's legacy. It's had a ton of different kinds of spinoffs, the movie, TV show. It's a pretty important piece of literature. I think it's actually considered to be like one of the best books on lots of greatest books lists, not just comic books, like all literature of the 20th century. It makes a lot of those lists on its own merits, you know. It's high time we gave it a little bit of our attention, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And, And you know what? You know how you know that something is this important? I mean, it was written... In the late 80s. And yet now, today, it seems as if everything that comes out that has anything to do with comic books or, you know, Marvel movies or DC movies, no matter what it is, from the boys to, you know, whatever, it is all based on or stems from this idea of the anti-hero. The anti-hero hero, you know... Uh,
0: that he he spawned i mean it's just amazing the superhero era ended in a way in a way kind of ended with watchmen and ushered in the anti-hero era. Not that superhero comics don't still thrive. Of course, they do. I mean, Avengers movies are huge. But even in Avengers. That's what I mean. It's like even within Avengers, they're anti-heroes, you know? So as always, let's start with a little bit of history, background of the series, the background to its creation and everything. And then we'll start talking about- First, I want to stop
1: all that. I want to hear, have you watched anything or you've been reading anything good? Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. You know what? But we're going to take a moment, folks, before we get to the Watchmen. We're going to stop the clock at 2 minutes to midnight here and we're going to um <laughs> we're going to take a quick aside things i'm watching i'm actually catching up on stranger things uh, my wife and i watched the first two seasons when we lived in atlanta the show's produced in atlanta and uh mm-hmm. when uh, she lived there in atlanta we had a roommate and he was actually a body double on the series like he worked on the series wow yeah he body doubled steve in season 1 and part of season 2 it was like all around us at the time. You know, it was one of those the first like big hits that was born out of Atlanta when it started kind of like taking off. And uh, it's really nice to see that it's kind of returned to its original glory. Kate Bush had her first number one hit forty six years after her last number one hit. Isn't that insane? Like fifty years later, <laughs> nearly fifty years later, wow. she gets back on the charts. I think the song originally came out in like nineteen eighty five, but it wasn't the number one hit. Her Number one hit before that was in the 70s. So it's kind of interesting to see that. And we're catching up. We're still on the third season. We haven't made it to the new fourth season yet. Besides that, uh, in my own spare time, I finally finished Deep Space Nine and have moved on to Voyager. I'm like one season into Voyager now, Star Trek Voyager. Oh my gosh. You're doing an epic Trek.
1: Yeah, I'm going to get them all. I'm
0: going to get them all. I'm going to watch every episode of Star Trek. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's actually kind of annoying, you know, actually, because I just watched all of Next Gen and Deep Space Nine over the past couple of years. And then I'm still like in Star Trek meme groups, that kind of thing. And I'll still see like a Deep Space Nine meme that I don't get. Because I'd be like, I, guess, <laughs> I forgot that. It's just, there's just so much. There's so I much. I know. And I know. Every season has like 25 episodes. And there are like seven seasons of both of those shows. And I think there are like six seasons of Voyager. And then after this, I've still got two or three more whole series before I get to the current stuff. Dude, Strange New Worlds is so
1: good. I oh know. I, everybody's God. telling me.
0: Everybody's telling me. Yeah,
1: what about you? What are you watching? You know, I, one of my favorite uh, authors is uh, a short story writer named George Saunders. And he wrote a book. I think I talked about it a little bit before. It's like very cerebral, dark, black, humor, uh, but sci-fi. It has tinges of sci-fi. And so George Saunders wrote a book called Civil Warland and Bad Decline. And a couple years ago, maybe two or three years ago, he put out another short story collection, which you would love. It's called The 10th of December. And one of the short stories, it was in The New Yorker. uh, And again, sci-fi. Um, was called Spiderhead or Escape from Spiderhead, mm-hmm. and they just made a freaking movie about it on, based on the short story, and it dropped on Netflix, and it's uh, it's called Spiderhead, and uh, Chris Hemsworth is the star of it. And oh no it kidding! It's really, yeah, it's really cool. It's a very small movie, you know, very uh, literary, but cool, man. And and I recommend. Anybody who likes really heady type of cerebral sci-fi to to read, uh, the either Civil War Land in Bad Decline or Tenth of December, they're both great. And check out the movie Spiderhead. So the movie's cool. good. It's it's better as an accompaniment to the story. So that was cool. So I, I stumbled on that and just strange new new worlds, man. I'm about to start. Because I've watched every season of uh, Stranger Things, so I'm about to start the fourth season. So I'm pumped. I'm totally I'll be pumped. honest
0: with you. We um, watched the first season; it's good. We watched the second season back when we still lived in Atlanta, and truthfully, the second season of Stranger Things isn't that great. It's pretty boring. Like they spent the whole time like trying to figure out what's going on with the tunnels or whatever. Mm-hmm. We kind of lost interest, and I kind of thought I would never come back to the show. But in order to come back, we had we watched the second season again so could we could remember what happened and i don't want to say suffered through it but kind of suffered through it again and we were like man i hope this is worth it and then we started season three now and season three rules it's so much more entertaining it, it like mm-hmm. it definitely picks up the pace a lot and i understand season season four is even more awesome so you know fingers crossed ah i'm stoked i can't wait i can't wait yeah and besides that rewatched the watchman film for this and uh the hbo series for this so you know um So refresher over the past like week or two to get prepared for the podcast, you know, that's takes a a lot of my like casual viewing is actually work viewing. You know, if you call, if you consider having a science fiction podcast to be work, which, you know, (laughs) it's it's not, let's, let's be real. Well, well, you know, I I will say to
1: dive back into Watchmen, I, I did not read the graphic novel till probably... Like the mid '90s, maybe the 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 later '90s, and I remember when I did, I was like, "Holy shit!" This for me, it was very literary. I oh, was like, "There's," because the, and and, I, and what, what I think of literary is where there are just so many themes and there are so many levels on which it's firing, and when you have the comic with like, I I, I love any kind of art that is multimedia where you have like the comic within the comic, oh, of course, have, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Or so I like books that have like transcriptions of, you know, whatever it is of some crime scene and it's all kind of mixed together and you're reading it and it just kind of forms a picture in your head. And that to me is what, uh, what Watchmen did where I was like, this is not comics.
0: It's oh, yeah. not a comic book. Well, it, you know, it transcends comic books. And, and, yeah. You know, it transcends comic books by, in a way, parodying or mirroring them. You know, it's kind of like Bizarro World comics. And, you know, he did that on purpose. That's definitely the intention behind the story. So, And I wonder if,
1: you know, you look at Alan Moore. I mean, he's clearly a genius, right? And, but he's very curmudgeon Mm-hmm. He's very, I, 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 I read an interview where he just blasted Stan Lee. He can't stand Stan Lee, called him a complete thief who stole everything from Jack Kirby. You know what I mean? Right. And and it, it was almost like, you know, he, he himself is such a rebel and just one of those He's always, it seems like he always has this counterpoint view. He's a true iconoclast. Right? Yeah. Like punk rock, like fuck the industry I love. You know what I mean?
0: I'm I'm a comic book writer, but I hate comics, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's really the jumping point. You know, if we're going to talk about the history of this comic, the story begins and ends. Well, it begins and we'll get back to whether or not it ends with him later. But the Watchman began as a brainchild of writer, Alan Moore. And if you guys, we've Mm -hmm. already described him a little bit, but if you guys don't know much about Alan Moore, definitely just look him up. He's got an extremely distinctive look to him. He kind of looks like a modern day Rasputin, (laughs) super long hair, super long beard. He's been really rocking the same style since he became a comic book writer like 40 years ago. This is how he is. And he's like hyper interested in the occult, and, you know, all sorts of iconoclastic ideas. He's heavily critical of lots of things around him. Like you say, he does not make very many live appearances, almost none. But has been probably the most sought after writer of comics his entire career. Even today, anybody in the industry would absolutely jump at the chance to work with him, despite his sometimes difficult attitudes. But he's been recognized as a literary genius from the jump. Yeah. So Alan Moore... He's an Englishman. He was born in Northampton, England. I think that's how you say it. Northampton. British listeners, forgive me for being an ignorant American. And his credits are just out of control. Batman the Killing Joke, probably often thought of as the pinnacle of Batman comics. From Hell, great story. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, you know, was made into a feature-length picture. V for Vendetta, made into a feature-length movie. He did, in my opinion, the defining run of Swamp Thing. And really, I think his run on Swamp Thing is the finest comic book arc ever written, bar none. Uh, I'm a huge Swamp Thing fan. But it all comes from the mind of this strange, anarchist, amateur magician, occultist, British guy, Alan Moore. Okay, so real quick history on Alan Moore. He was uh, working as a comic writer starting in the late 70s. He started in 1978, and he mostly did indie comics, like underground comics. He worked for 2000 AD, a British comic line that eventually spawned Judge Dredd and a number of other really cool comics. And he worked here and there picking up jobs for Marvel UK, which was, at the time, still really trying to get its foothold uh, across the sea. Like Marvel was very popular here, but hard to sell Captain America to the British, you know? Uh, (laughs) So, you know, they were struggling to get a foothold, struggling to find their identity in Britain. And he really helped that by being sort of like the catalyst between the grassroots comics of England and the mainstream Marvel. And after a while, he did that. And then he gets approached by DC Comics to revive the swamp thing franchise because swamp thing had been created about a decade earlier by lynn ween and bernie wrightson the two very famous comic creators and it had basically become stagnant and kind of become a bad seller the story had painted itself into a corner it had become kind of formulaic and boring and they were like all right alan we're gonna cancel this anyway so you can do whatever you want with it impress us And boy, does he ever. Man, if you've never read the Saga of the Swamp Thing story arc, it's Swamp Thing number... I I have, and it's amazing. It really is. is. It's it's Swamp Thing number 20 through like 64. It's from like 1984 to like 1988. And it really is incredible. Like he basically takes Swamp Thing and recreates the character instead of being just a man who gets turned into a plant monster, which is the original idea. He remakes Swamp Thing. So Swamp Thing is a plant who absorbed the personality of the dying man who he's never been a person. He just thinks, he thought he was a person for a short time. Yeah. And he's, he
1: struggles like with who Who am I? And these existential, he gave it this depth of this existential, what does it almost mean to be alive? What does it mean? Right. Mean to be human. Yeah. and uh, Which is what we always talk about. What is great sci-fi?
0: Even though it's, in many ways, a fantasy comic because he's in plant elemental, which is not really a science fiction concept. And he, he like goes to hell and he exists on the spirit <laughs> plane and the, the, and all sorts of other cra- crazy things happen. There is a heavy science fiction influence as well. He ends up going to space and existing as like, uh, I, I don't want to give it all away. I don't want to give you it, but <laughs> that Alan Moore story arc is beautiful. It's got some of the best art ever, ever created for basically any comic series, along with Stephen Bissett and John Totleben, Rick Veach. These artists created this really magnificent sort of like head trippy. That's one way I'd really describe the comics being really trippy. Anyway, he completely revitalized the comic and it became one of DC's top lines. And in the over the course of that, he also created characters like John Constantine for the Swamp Thing series. And that character went on to be one of you know, had a feature film made about it. Um, I think a couple, I think there have been a couple of Constantine movies at this point and, you know, just generally uh, revitalize the franchise. Although subsequently it fell onto hard times again and Swamp Thing is, it's really struggled to stay relevant over the years. I think it's a difficult story. I, I think that, you know, you have a character like Batman
1: where you're like, okay, playboy billionaire uh, vigilante fights crime at night you know, conflicted. It's a very easy story to tell over and over again. I think Swamp Thing's impossible. Yeah, and for him, for you have to be a, a great writer like Alan Moore or Grant Morrison to really take something, in my opinion, to make that
0: work. I think that's what's so remarkable about it. Both of those writers have done a fantastic job with the series. Uh, Grant Morrison's little short run on. Swamp Thing in the late 90s is also really great too. Yeah. Okay, so he basically becomes like a mainstream comic writer by revitalizing the series. And while he's doing that, DC has acquired characters from a long defunct comic company called Charlton Comics. And they had their own line of characters and they were around in like the 40s and 50s. And what Alan Moore wants to do, his idea is to take these characters and, and put them into like a very literary very profound storyline independent storyline using these characters and uh he uh you know starts writing this whole concept using these as characters and he brings it to the guys who are like the the big shots at dc uh, at the time as lynn ween and dick giordano two enormously famous comic creators and they were like look we like the idea of you doing whatever you want, but we're really uh, hesitant to let you use these characters because whatever you do to these characters, it's going to make them really difficult to write going forward. You know what I mean? Because we know your style,
1: we know what you're up to. And, yeah, you're and, gonna be—you're gonna make them anti-heroes. You're gonna make them
0: flawed. You're gonna make them. Yeah, and he's and they're basically like, you know, look, we just want you to. Do the same idea, but just create your own characters. And at first, Alan Moore didn't want to do that. He thought, you know, he thought it would be better to use characters that people had some familiarity with. But then he just eventually kind of like got on board and was like, you know what? Actually, all I have to do is just give you the characteristics of those characters in new characters.
1: Yeah, Charlton. You know, they had it, this was a very very important. I think DC thought when they acquired these characters from this bankrupt company that you know these could go on to become really big because Charlton at one point was just one of the most important imprints that there was. Right. And, you know, uh, not many characters really do we know today, but Peacemaker from Suicide Squad came from Charlton. That's right. And, um, and, you know, and so. And his show is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah, you know, so, but I, I love the fact that when you dig into the Charlton characters, it's like, Dr. Manhattan is so based on Captain Adam. Right. He looks just like him. He's, you know, so it's kind of cool and you had Nightshade who is a Charlton character and so it's kind of cool how
0: he just kind of pivoted and was like, "All right, I'll do it. I'll make my own," you know. In the end, in my opinion, it really played into what the comic is about by like giving these caricatures of these comic characters. It really kind of like t- helps in my opinion tell the story of Watchmen. Because The Watchmen is about heroes in its sort of a generic sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like the Night Owl, I mean, how is that not Batman? You know? No. It's, know. it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's, it's Batman, you know? Or they also, yeah. he's, he's also kind of, a, he's somewhere between Batman and a character, the Blue Beetle, which was a Charlton character. Yeah. He's basically saying that, like, this, this type is what we're talking about when we talk about this character. So he decides he's going to do this and while he's penning Swamp Thing, and these issues are beautifully written and they you know they're one a month and he writes all of them for you know four or five years. While he's doing that, he develops and writes all the scripts for The Watchmen, which is in all on its own just an insane feat for any writer. I'm a writer myself and when you see the things that Alan Moore did, especially when he was like at his most productive, it's just kind of like, it makes other writers feel really shitty because <laughs> we're like, ah, oh, geez, how are you going to compete with that, dude? But yeah. at, the other, at the same time, it also like inspires you a lot. Okay. So Dave Gibbons, who he had worked with doing some independent stories in 2000 AD, heard that Alan Moore had been given this opportunity and basically called him up and said, hey, let, let me be the artist for this. And Alan Moore agreed. And we also kind of learn from this interaction that Alan Moore didn't really have that much interest in how the characters looked. He basically let Dave Gibbons do whatever he want in terms of like how the characters ended up looking. He basically said, you know, I wanted to use these characters. I can't now. So like you come up with the, the look. And Dave Gibbons is there for more or less responsible, entirely responsible for the look of all of the characters in The Watchmen. And, you know, the art is fantastic. If you've uh, ever picked up the comic and looked through it, do yourself a favor. It's great. So these two start developing together. And one of my favorite little anecdotes is that Dave Gibbons, when he first got the scripts, he was given 100 typed pages with no paragraph breaks, (laughs) single space, (laughs) typed front and back, and not numbered. And he said the first thing he had to do was Sit down and number the pages because he was terrified that he'd drop the stack and it would take him like a week. To put them back in order again. Oh my god! Because there were like no page markings. But this is just how Alan Moore is as an individual. That's like something like Ted Kaczynski. You're like, yeah, I yeah. just got this this manifesto. It's yeah. not even a comic script. It's a manifesto. <laughs> and when you look at Alan Moore, you think this dude probably writes his share of manifestos. You know? Yeah. And, and the truth, truthfully speaking, when you read his characters, you're like, oh, this actually is a manifesto. Oh, my God. Just disguised as a comic book, especially with characters like Warshak, you know? Yeah. Okay, so they uh, start cranking out the comic. It takes them a long time to get it ready for production. Like he says, they started really early so that they wouldn't face delays. They still ended up facing delays. But when they turned in work, Lynn Wein and Dick Giordano ended up being the supervising editors of this comic. And the story is that they just let him do whatever he wanted, basically. And then there's a really great... This is one of my favorite lines here is that Giordano later remarked, who copy edits Alan Moore, for God's sake? So he's just like, <laughs> he, he's, like I'm he's like, this guy's a genius. I'm not going to be able to improve on any of his work. So that is kind of the story of how it started. Now, I think uh, that we have an understanding of the story itself. It ended up being launched in 1987. Basically, it was done as a single volume. And that's how I ended up reading it as well. Uh, I didn't read it until about 2007 or so I would have been in my mid twenties at that point when a friend I worked with had the collected edition and just let me borrow it. And I went home and read it in like one day (laughs) because I could not put it down.
1: Yeah. I I mean, for me, honestly, like I was kind of a snob growing up uh, 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 in regards to comics because I I just, I I read fiction, you know, I love fiction. And so I was always like, you know, why, why would I want to, read a comic book when I could read a novel and it was the, the two things that really in the 90s that I read I didn't read them when they first came out that changed my mind there I was like holy shit this is a real medium artistic medium were Watchmen and Akira and both of those were like this is insane yeah like the the depth the literary depth and just uh, it just speak.
0: redefines the medium you know and yeah. Watchmen absolutely did that. Watchmen redefined the medium by mirroring the medium. Uh So we'll talk about the story itself. There may somehow be some of you out there who uh, aren't familiar with the plot of Watchmen, but I'll I'll, uh, explain it to you. Okay, it's set in an alternate timeline. Somewhere in the 1930s, the normal timeline diverged and created a new timeline. It doesn't exactly explain it, but it has something to do with the emergence of vigilante heroes like masked heroes, non-superpowered heroes, basically they're talking about Batman when they talk about this. Yeah. And about how the emergence of those created another timeline in this reality. And there was a there was a hero team of Hooded Crusaders in the 30s and they eventually break up and then years later a actual superhero comes into existence. And that is, okay, well, me let me set the stage for you. Some years later, history has been altered so much that America ends up winning the Vietnam War instead of losing the Vietnam War. Part of that is because an actual superhero comes into being in a world where it had just been like mass vigilantes for all of these years. An actual superhero is born, and that is Dr. Manhattan. And Dr. Manhattan is a physicist who is in an accident? He ends up trapped in an intrinsic field generator, whatever the hell that is. After that, he disappears and is gone, and then eventually reappears as Doctor. Ma- he's John Osterman, the physicist, and then reappears as Doctor Manhattan, who now has control over matter and can see time non-linearly. So he's basically a god. He has. He's more powerful than Superman in the comics. He's about as powerful as a comic book character can be. He uh, is invulnerable, he doesn't age, he doesn't need air, food, water, he can destroy things just with a wave of his hand, he can create things with the wave of his hand, and he ushers in the era of the superhero. So as soon as that happens, America enlists him, because he still has John Osterman's personality, and John Osterman was a patriot, worked for the United States government, and they enlist him to join the military and help end the Vietnam War. And basically what he does is he goes over there and, with the help of some other government-contracted heroes, murders the shit out of the Viet Cong and totally changes the tide of war for America easily by being a gigantic weapon of war. And this happens maybe about 15 years before the real-time events of the comic. And the real-time events of the comic really revolve around an act was passed through Congress called the Keene Act – And what it means is that masked superheroes are forbidden and only Dr. Manhattan is allowed to act as like a superhero, although he's largely lost interest in that and spends his time working on theoretical theory and that kind of thing. And another character called The Comedian, who is in many ways similar to The Punisher, a violent, unhinged vigilante who uh, takes a lot of pleasure in killing people to do his job. He's sort of a judge dread type character like is very happy to be the judge jury and executioner.
1: You know what's so interesting about like both of these characters is what they share in common is they have almost a complete disdain and contempt for humanity, right Like so Dr. Manhattan becomes so omnipotent that he sees the future in the past. he he realizes that he even he, does not have free will, right? Free will is an illusion. We're all just puppets in this drama. And there's no reason to even get involved. He's like, humanity is doomed. It's going to do what it's going to do. Forget about it, right? And that's why at some point in in the comic, he just goes to Mars and just gives up. And then you have the comedian, you know, on the other side, just almost really hates humanity. And like you said, just wants to torture people almost. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the, if you want to talk about like antiheroes, these two are like, they don't just, you know, do things that
0: are questionable like Batman. They hate humanity. That's Absolutely. crazy. You know, and really the group is made up of different kinds of the Watchmen group is made up of several different types of antiheroes, you know, and it really explores the antihero question with different types of personalities. There's the guy who literally hates everyone. There's the Rorschach, right? Yeah, the the Rorschach. You know, his great quote is in the comic where he's monologuing to himself and he's saying that one day they'll look up and strangled breath, they'll say, help us, and I'll whisper, no. You know, and (laughs) because he basically represents a perverted sense of justice. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's just... Because he has uncompromising morals, his morals are uncompromising, and because he doesn't have the ability to compromise his morals, he sees everyone else as morally inferior, and that includes Doctor Manhattan, that includes all of the other members of the Watchmen, that includes everyone. Yeah. Then you have the comedian, who is an antihero in the truest sense. That he doesn't hate anybody. He thinks it all, all of it, it the, is meaningless. He thinks it all is a big joke, and that's the whole point of his character: is that it doesn't matter. None of it matters. You know, it's all a big joke to him. Everybody else's passion for justice and everything is all just a big joke to him. Almost
1: like this nihilist,
0: right? He's almost like a nihilist. Yeah. That was one of the intentions of the comic. Alan Moore's actually said that, that one of his intentions was the comic was to create these morally ambiguous characters so that the audience, when reading it, wouldn't be morally directed. They wouldn't be led through a moral maze they would have to look at all of these different views of the same events from all of these different moral perspectives And kind of try to piece together the morality themselves. Yeah, It's done splendidly. Like when you get finished reading Watchmen, you're not like, oh, here's who the good guy was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're not like at the end of Star Wars where you're like, we
0: won, Luke and, you know, our heroes won. Yeah, it's definitely nothing like that. I think it's a really wise, especially he was a pretty young guy at the time when he wrote this. He was in his 20s. And this is a really wise Notion for somebody because before this, even though there had been anti hero comics before this, he didn't invent the anti hero, just to be clear, but he did really like give the anti hero texture. He fleshed out the idea of the anti hero to be more than just a hero that plays by their own rules. Yeah. And because he did that, the anti hero as a concept became one of the most popular, I mean, Wolverine became hugely popular. Spawn comics started shortly after this. The antihero became like really the most popular type of hero for a whole generation, I would say. So uh, the, the main plot of Watchmen is that in the future, in the 80s, during uh, Richard Nixon's third or fourth term as president, the nuclear clock is set to two minutes to midnight. Because of like growing tensions with nuclear Russia and imminent nuclear uh, annihilation is predicted to take place in the not-too-distant future. Meanwhile, the comedian, who at this point is a retired vigilante, is murdered. And because he's murdered, Rorschach, one of the members of the Watchmen, who are now disbanded due to the Keene Act, takes up the case because he doesn't care about the law at all. He still continues to be a mass vigilante the whole time. He never quit. And when he takes up the case, he starts learning all of these things, digging deeper and deeper into a rabbit hole. I won't give away what happens in the story too much, although we are going to talk about the finale of the book here in a second and compare that to the movie. And then it becomes like a tangled web of mystery as he tries to solve this murder and becomes wrapped in a plot involving former murders of the Watchmen and their independent plans to save the world during this imminent destruction. So without giving too much of the plot away, well, actually, I don't think we can really discuss this without giving all of the plot away, truthfully. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty hard not to. One of the members of the Watchmen was Adrian Veidt, and Adrian Veidt, known as Ozymandias, is possibly the smartest man in the world and highly physically fit. I don't know his exact parallel in comics, but he's like a peak human being with peak human abilities and peak mental abilities but not superpowers. And it all comes down to the fact that he has constructed a secret plan to unite humanity so that the threat of nuclear war end. and his plan in the comic is he has in his laboratories created a giant monster, like a squid octopus-like monster that he unleashes on New York in the guise of an alien invasion. And so that human beings drop all of their infighting to team up to stop an alien invasion and he is perfectly willing to sacrifice members of the watchmen and all of the people that are killed by the squid monster when it attacks new york
1: 3 million people 3 million people so again you have a morally dubious you know question which the heart of the uh, uh, of the conspiracy is well he is trying to save humanity But, but is the way he's
0: going about it, does the end justify the means, you know? At the end of the comic, he explains his master plan and everybody there basically says, you know what, you're right. Keeping this a secret is in the best interest of humanity. They all see the logic of his plan, except for Rorschach, Who had already secretly sent out Rorschach was sending out like information to a journalist, right? To various journalists, yeah. Yeah, And you know, he he the, the truth behind it, and basically, in the process of doing that, ruins Ozymandias's plan. Although the comic ends before you find out what happens with that. In fact, the last panel of the last issue of the comic is the newspaper staff picking up his journal. From a stack of their junk files, to looking for a story, so you're you're kind of left to assume. And I
1: think the last thing—tell me if I'm wrong—but it was something to the effect of like, "Make of this what you will." Right. You know. And and so he's leaving, and you shut the comic, right? Right. And then so, or the graphic novel, and you're left saying, "Well, wait, was this good or was it bad?" Right. And he leaves not only the journalist with that question, but he leaves us, the reader. And that's why we go back to what we were talking about with Alan Moore's predilection for questioning and his disdain for comic books and Stan Lee and all that. He's just putting it in our our faces and saying, you know, forget about what you know about traditional comics where everything is scripted like Luke Skywalker at the end of Star Wars. I want you to shut this book and say, I don't know what I feel, you
0: know? Right. That's definitely the path he was trying to lead you down. And that actually runs true in a lot of his stories. That is sort of a Alan Moore trademark in a lot of ways is he likes to do that. I mean, that V for Vendetta, for example, yes. is another, another story that carries a lot of the same kinds of themes. Like, which of these guys is the good guy? Do the um, ends outweigh the means? That's what separates it from a lot of the comics at the time is that, like you said, you read another comic and you'd be like, oh, cool. Superman kicked Lex Luthor's ass great. I clearly know which one of these was the good guy and which one of these was the bad guy. But when you read this comic, even the superhero in the comic is bad in many ways, many times. Like he's used as a tool for the government to just kill the Viet Cong, remorselessly murders hundreds of thousands of people as a weapon of war. And you can make the case that, oh, he was doing his best to end the conflict. But it's also easy to see that America never had to be in that conflict in the first place. Yeah, and it takes the Vietnam War, which was a highly morally ambiguous thing. Even in now looking back on it, you don't. If there's very little moral ambiguity. It's an immoral thing that happened in our history, but at the time, it was highly morally ambiguous. Divided the nation considerably. You know, huge protests throughout the country for a decade. And I
1: think that that is. It's a, it's very important to. When you're reading the Watchmen and or any real piece of art, because even science fiction, which looks into the future, is grounded in the present, right? It's a reflection of what's happening. And if you really want to understand Watchmen, you you have to think about from that cultural and historical context where, you know, during the 40s and 50s, people trusted their governments, right? Right. And right. so the comics reflected that. You had, you know, Superman and Captain America, and you know these characters who, for me, are just so boring. You know, but then the, his generation, Alan Moore's generation, goes through Vietnam, goes through, right. you know, what happens with Watergate, what happens with, even though you know, and so you have this throughout the the world. That generation starts to really question government and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this right? Is this right? They're lying to us. They're deceiving us. And so uh, Watchmen was born out of that, where he was like, screw the 40s and 50s. So screw Stan Lee and screw your, you know, morally just pretentious, this is the way things are comics, because that's not the way the world
0: works. Yeah. Like propaganda comics. You know, Copics used as propaganda to, you know, yes. sell sell nationalist ideas, to sell patriotic, I'm using air quotes here, ideas that aren't necessarily universally moral. No. Being from the World War II generation, it's hard not to be like America's the good guys, Nazis, Germany yeah. and Nazis and Japan, those are the bad guys. Even in retrospect, it's hard to not see it that way. But assuming that because America was the good guy during those conflicts, and again, I just, I'm not saying that as an actual fact. America did lots of things wrong during World War II. I mean, like a ridiculous amount of things wrong. The bombing of Dresden, Japanese internment camps, dropping nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on and on. But even if you do land on America was the good guy in World War II and the other guys are the bad guys, that does not necessarily carry forward that America continued to be the good guy on the world stage thereafter, you know? And Vietnam was like the ultimate example of this you know it's like okay how are you the good guys now at this point you just want to eradicate communism and communism isn't on its own doing anything evil even though don't get me wrong the soviet union had plenty of its own immoral things happening too but it's not inherently evil like nazism you know what i mean the 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 tenets of Communism are not kill all Jews. Yeah. You know, that's not the idea behind it. But the American government characterized it that way. And people started, you know, being clued into that. Oh, this is, we're just being propagandized now so that our leaders that have this system, this capitalistic, democratic capitalist system, can be maintained and not be threatened by you know, a system where people don't use capital as their driving motivation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, without getting too much into the, politics, this is another one where it's it's a, it's a hard episode to avoid politics, you know, because politics, especially the politics we've discussed up until now, play a huge part in the story. Yeah. The fact that Nixon, Watergate never happens because of the alternate timeline. So Nixon remains in office. It's I think
1: it we've been insinuated that the comedian had a role in helping to cover up uh, Watergate. Oh, yeah. And so. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. You yeah, know, he he plays a government operative that his whole thing is like, yeah, America wins because I'm on America's team, you know, and not because he especially likes America's morals or anything like that. He's just like, this is my team, and I'm going to make sure they win. Not to lean too heavily into the politics of it, but that is a big part of the story as well. So the comic was a success. It was a big success for DC. It won a ton of awards. It was looked at pretty much immediately as a masterpiece. Pretty much, no one was like, oh, this is. Not good, or whatever. It created its own legacy, but because of being what it is, being a pretty dense piece of writing, and not like a leisurely superhero read, you know, you're not. It's not Spider Man. It's not Superman. It kind of flew under the radar for kind of a long time, even though you know hardcore fans still liked it. But then in 2009, this was just a few years after I read the comic. The movie came out, directed by Zack Snyder. I don't want to go too much into the movie because the movie doesn't actually differ significantly, in my opinion, from the comic. It's pretty similar to the comic. I, it, I'm not a big Zack Snyder fan. I know, I think you and I differ a little bit on that one. I think he kind of like rehashes the same tricks over and over again. I'm, I'm not a huge Zack Snyder fan either. Okay, well, I, I know you liked uh, his <laughs> cut, the... uh Justice League. The, the Justice League cut. Yes, it was much, much, much better. Yeah, I enjoyed that. But to me, Watchmen is probably his second best movie honestly I know this I might get booed for this one not a big fan of the guy I don't hate him or anything he's just I think he's a little overrated but my favorite Zack Snyder movies are his remake of Dawn of the Dead and then Watchmen and then after that I'm kind of like all the rest of them, I can kind of take her. Yeah. So that's just... I mean, 300... Sucker Punch, dude, was so good. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing is that all of his movies have their moments. They do. They do. The problem with Zack
1: Snyder, because I think you and I are kind of on the same page, it's very hard to relate to his characters. It's There's not a whole lot of heart. Yeah. There's just... It's a very coldness. And I'm very character-driven. So while I like Sucker Punch, I really... When I watched that the first time, I was like, "Holy shit, that was visually yeah. the whole thing was amazing." But on rewatch, I was just like, "Yeah, I'll probably
0: never watch this again." You know? Yeah, and that's that's how I feel about most of his movies. I like, me even too. though I, did I give, do too,
1: I do too. Even though I
0: did give uh, Justice League a rewatch when the the cut came out, he also has another movie coming out that really interests me. He has a movie called Rebel Moon coming out, mm-hmm. and it's a space opera style movie. And as far as I know, it's an original story, space opera story. I don't know much about him working with original work or his original stories because everything I've seen of his has been based on something else, except Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch. Yeah, except for Sucker Punch. But Sucker Punch kind of sucks. I mean, like no offense to people who are big fans, but I was like pretty bored with that movie. Although I get that some of its themes are important. Don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't blown away by it. So we'll, I'm going to give Rebel Moon a chance for sure. I'm with you. I think he's one of those guys where
1: you're like, I'm going to watch everything he puts out and I know I'm probably not going to re-watch it. You know what I mean?
0: Okay, so the movie differs only a little bit. Really, the only difference is that the ending of the movie is different. differs from the ending of the comic. Well, actually, there are two differences. In the original graphic novel, there are two other stories within the story. There is the... Autobiography of the original Night Owl, which is called Under the Hood. And it mm-hmm. reveals a lot about the Minutemen, the pre Watchmen superhero group that existed in like the 30s and 40s. And that's pretty integral to the plot. And there's also an in comic comic, which you mentioned at the onset of the show, called Tales of the Black Freighter, which is a kid in the comic is reading, reading. this comic. Yeah, he's yeah. reading it. And one of my favorite things about this is that he uses a non-superhero comic to create a parallel to this parody of superhero comics. Because he wants to use an in-story comic, but he knows that an in-story superhero comic would be too on the nose. So he uses a, an adventure comic, a pirate-themed, like almost like a horror comic called Tales of the Black Freighter to draw parallels. And it's highly effective when you read the book. When you're reading the book, it does a lot to draw all of the uh, themes together, and the movie doesn't have any of the the under-the-hood stuff or any of Tales from the Black Freighter. Although they did produce a Tales from the Black Freighter short as a companion piece to the movie, unfortunately, it's not very well animated, and it stars Gerard Butler, who is the worst actor in the history of acting. As a voice actor. So I find the Tales from the Black Freighter animated companion piece to be nearly unwatchable. I watched it one time and I was like, oh. And because it's not threaded into the film, it loses its potency as a companion piece to me. Totally. But those complaints aside, I think that Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie is about as good of an adaptation as you're going to get if you're only going to make it into one movie. Yeah, You know, like the Watchmen comic is expansive. It's really long and it has those intertwining stories. So it, like you've said many, many times, it probably would have been better done as a series, like a limited series.
1: And it's a different medium. And you almost have to then say, well, was he too true to the source material and just tried to create a right. version of line by- you know what I
0: mean? That's a completely fair criticism in my opinion as well because it is in many ways like shot for shot lots of times and some of the acting is pretty wooden and yes the writing as it appeared on the page doesn't quite translate that well when you know spoken by live action characters It kind of comes across as corny some of the time, Mm -hmm. but other times it doesn't and is quite effective. And overall I'd give the movie a B plus.
1: The the Dr. Manhattan
0: scenes, every one of them is amazing. It's really cool. They capture the Dr. Manhattan character, which is the essence of the comic, in my opinion. Very well. Okay. So before we end this episode, we're pretty near the end. I think we should quickly discuss the HBO series spinoff, which takes place like 35 years after the events of the, the book? I tried. I tried. <laughs> I like it, and I have some problems with it. I thought it was extremely well-produced. I thought a lot of the ideas in it were good. I do like that they took on race as a central theme because there is basically no discussion of race at all in the um, comic. And in a way, that feels shoehorned in, but, you know, it's also, it's a moral stumbling block that Alan Moore decided not to take on himself, you know? And uh, even though there are characters of color in the story, actually, I say that, but the only character of color I could think of in the story is the little kid that's reading, He's the, kid, tale, yeah. reading the Black Freighter comic. It, it, I might be wrong. I might've missed some, some, but pretty much all the other characters are white people. So, you know, Alan Moore being from England, I know that he didn't like the HBO series. I know he was outspoken about them changing things up and him not liking it. Dude, I I don't think he liked the movie
1: of Watchmen. He hated V for Vendetta. I don't think
0: he likes anybody touching his work at all. He actually tries his best to keep his properties out of Hollywood. Like he very unusual for a writer to be that way, but he really doesn't like his properties being co-opted, or what nope. he feels as being co-opted. But he's a kind of a kooky guy, man. Definitely lived his life his own way. Personally, I liked the series. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was quite as great as the critics. like The critics fawned over it. I thought that overall, the plot was unnecessarily complicated. Mm-hmm. Convoluted, is even how I would say. And it did a bit of retconning of things that happened in the comic. And I don't normally like retcon stuff i think it's a disservice to the creator to retcon stuff too dramatically Mm -hmm. and they did they did quite a bit in this story so but overall i thought it was pretty good it was definitely i thought entertaining except for like i say i I, it's kind of hard to follow maybe i should give it another chance i probably will give it another chance at some point it's only like nine episodes but my initial impression was that was good but not as good as all the critics told me it was going to be
1: yeah I, i i i watched it i was like yeah I think some comics came out afterwards also that he was not a part of. I think DC, you know, you have to kind of think that, you know, we live in an age now where a lot of these are, a lot of these properties like Walking Dead are creator owned and Watchmen, he does not own Watchmen, you know, DC owns Watchmen. They can do with it whatever they want. And Man, unfortunately
0: for him, unfortunately for him, that's true of almost all of his works. You know, and that's yeah. why John Constantine is on the big screen. That's why they made a pretty mediocre movie of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's why they made V for Vendetta. That's why they made From Hell into a movie. Because he couldn't stop them from doing it. Because he didn't own it. He tried to stop them. Yeah. It is what it is, but think of it as you know, if you're thinking about themes from this episode, creators creating all of this really important work. Who, because they worked under specific conditions, now have no control over that work at all. You wonder why he hates the comic industry, you know? It's
1: like, <laughs>
0: but he continued <laughs> to work in it for such a long time, you know. And uh, yeah. I think, I think at this point, he's more or less retired. I don't think he has any new projects coming up. He's writing a lot of novels and
1: and and
0: more prose that he owns. You know what I mean? That he could
1: control. You know he's not dependent on a, on a uh, an illustrator to uh, to bring his ideas to life now.
0: On the onset of the show, you mentioned The Boys, mm-hmm. which is a very popular show right now, and The Boys is basically The Watchmen. Yeah, and I don't want to call anything a rip off. I mean, we've talked about this a lot of times. Stories are built on pre-existing stories, so I don't really almost ever think of anything as a ripoff. But the boys is basically that, and uh, what was the other one that came out pretty recently? Uh, Invincible, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. where the power of heroes drives them to corruption. I love that show. Ugh. The influence of Watchmen is undeniable. It's it was hugely influential and remains hugely influential to this day. I think it's definitely worth us talking about the comic itself. Mostly, is not science fiction. Most of the comic is not presented as a science fiction comic because most of the characters don't have superpowers. They're just ordinary people. It's more like Batman. But right in the middle of it is this giant science fiction elephant in the room, Dr. Manhattan. And because Dr. Manhattan was created through a science experiment and has all of these scientific-based powers and everything, it lifts this gritty, noir comic up into the level of science fiction and, like, hangs it there. It is, without question, a science fiction comic now. A big portion of the story takes place on Mars, for Pete's sake.
1: Yeah, yeah. and in and, and the end, with the H.P. Lovecraft, uh, you know, the, uh, creature that uh, attacks um, and kills three million people. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely sci-fi in that respect. Uh, but it's that juxtaposition between just flawed, u- angry humans, you know, and... Uh, and sci-fi so yeah i'm I'm, i again i i i probably um after talking about it i'm gonna go back and reread the entire uh the entire graphic novel it's that good man it's
0: so freaking good that and akira for me are just the best the best all right. Well, this was a great episode. I don't know what we're going to do next time. Um, we'll think of something in the meantime, but if you guys haven't read Watchmen, if you've only seen the movie, do yourself a favor, pick up a copy of the book. You could probably check it out at your local library, I imagine, and uh, read it. Even though it's pretty um, heady and very literary, it's not terribly long because it's, it is a graphic novel after all, or a comic so, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to read, and I really recommend it. Definitely put it on your list. Yeah,
1: it's awesome. All right, man. That was awesome. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's figure out what we're going to do next, and uh, I will talk to
0: you next week. All right, man. Peace. All right, Omni. Bye. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds magazine or on Twitter at IW sci-fi Mag. Also You can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram, at Nick the Tooth, and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo.